Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Jag Lamba, CEO and founder of Serta, a third-party management platform that's raised $52 million in funding. Jag, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Not a problem, and I'm super excited for our conversation here. Let's go ahead and just kick off with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. I started my career as an engineer, and then I joined McKinsey Consulting, you know, went to business school in the middle, and then that was sort of the bulk of my career. And then I did some private equity and I really missed building products. So decided to start a company and that's what brought me to Serta. What was your time like at McKinsey? The greatest thing about McKinsey is the quality and the, like the intellect of the people you work with, right? So it's exhilarating to work with incredibly smart, driven people. Love that part of it. The consulting did not fully resonate with me. I think I'm more of a builder. And I like to go deeper than consulting allowed me. And I just hated the travel. <laughs> the travel is like, you know, travel is an absolute killer for consultants. Yeah, I can imagine. And a lot of my friends were in consulting. That was an issue that they cited as well. So you can definitely see that. When it comes to founders who inspire you, who's the most inspirational founder that comes to mind? It was Bezos for a bit, but now I don't think anyone for me comes close to Satya. Like incredible, you know, I mean, it's hard enough to make changes in a small company and, you know, turn things around, you know, he's been able to turn around this massive ship, this, you know, almost like a mini country and, you know, improve the culture, improve the product quality and, you know, the pace of innovation, you know, so just bringing about that level of transformation, you know, might be unparalleled in history. So I'm in awe of him. And I try to emulate him as much as possible. Yeah, I feel the same way. And especially the past year, it's like, wow, he's had quite the year. I know Time Magazine just named Taylor Swift, I think, person of the year, but he had to be up there in the running at least. It's been a, a pretty crazy year. 100%. I mean, and just look at the acquisitions also that he's made, right? You know, everything from like GitHub to LinkedIn and, you know, open air on acquisition, but, you know, pretty, you know, I mean, seems pretty close to it. I mean, he certainly has the influence there, right? So, I mean, I don't know how someone can be so transformative while being empathetic and being so strategic, right? In terms of acquisition, you know, see a few steps beyond what anyone else can see. I mean, just, I'm in awe of that guy. Yeah, 100% agree. What about books that have really inspired you along the way? And we tend to, you know, kind of turn away like the big obvious books, like the hard thing about hard things. Of course, every founder got value out of that book, but taking a layer deeper, like what are books that have really shaped you as an individual and as a person? You know, I think lately, one of the books that I really, really loved and it stayed with me for a bit are uh, Red Notice. It's basically, yeah, Bill Browder. Yeah. And it takes so much courage to do what he did. I mean, to stand up, you know, against some of the most powerful, you know, in some ways, ruthless folks in the world and just incredible what he's done. 
I think there was another book that I'm missing the name right now. It was about the escape from North Korea. So yeah, I love that, man. Again, you know, I think it's it's by this lady called Naomi Yeonmi Park. Yeonmi Park. And I absolutely love that book, you know, just the sheer courage and, you know, survival instinct and being able to do that without having, you know, sort of that victim mentality, you know, just overcoming the odds, just extreme, extreme, it's very inspiring. I think it's called uh, In Order to Live. I've not read that yet, but I'll add that to my list. And and on the first one, I'm a big fan of Red Notice. I read that probably a couple of years ago and it's pretty insane. Like just even before everything happened to him, the premise of his business was so insane. And right. Western to go into to Russia and you take that stance and essentially do, I think it was like green mailing, right? Like he was doing what everyone here was doing in the, it was like the 80s, yeah. early 90s. And to do that in Russia is, uh, is pretty insane. And I'm sure it was quite the adventure. Yeah, I also read The Freezing Order, you know, which came out last year which is just a like more detailed account and also an account beyond, uh, you know, like, you know, goes into the old Magnitsky Act and everything, you know, how he made that happen, you know, and I enjoyed that as much. You know, he's got a really nice way of storytelling, you know, something so significant. Yeah, incredible. I mean, and some of my business is around that, right? Sort of. So it also feels so relevant. You know, we enable companies to comply with all these global sanctions. So we have these global companies that use Serda software to comply with these global regulations, global sanctions, you know, around their supply chain, partner networks, et cetera. So that's like all the more relevant to me because, you know, the terminology and some of the cases I see with my clients. I think it's a perfect segue to dive a bit deeper into the company. So take us back to 2015. It looks like that's when the company was founded. What was going on in your world that you uncovered this compliance problem and, and found out this problem existed? Yeah, so what we do is this third-party risk compliance and ESG. What that means is basically in layman's terms, we enable companies to safely and efficiently work with all their third parties. You know, a company basically is a large network of third parties. And by third parties, I mean, you know, they're the company and their vendors, their partners, their distributors, and their customers. And so companies are constantly you know, working with all these third parties. And you know, while I was at McKinsey, I noticed that it was really painful. Like this is such a basic process for a company, right? But the amount of you know, if, you know, regulation, you know, information security, privacy needs, reputation impact, ESG needs, like there were just so many rising needs that it was really becoming hard for people to work with you know suppliers, partners, customers, et cetera. You know, this is basically what explains the infamous, you know, procurement and compliance bottleneck, right? It can take three to six months if you want to work with a large company. So this seemed like a big point of friction overall in the business ecosystem. And you know, it's just a classic efficiency problem that it felt like worth solving. So as soon as I started focusing on this problem, you know, we were able to get some incredible, like, you know, large enterprises, you know, who, who basically raised their hand and said, yeah, we, you know, we'll partner with you, Jag, if you want to solve this problem. So that's how it started. What did they see in you to say, yeah, Jag seems legit. Let's trust him to solve this big, massive problem that, you know, probably comes with a lot of risk and a lot of liability. Why do you think that they put their trust in you early on? You know, 
what I felt at that time was that I wasn't going to let my customers down if they took a chance on me. Like I felt really strongly from every part of me that, you know, I kind of knew that they were taking a risk on a new company. And I had this commitment inside me. I said, I'm not going to let my clients down. And that may have come across in my discussions with them. And, you know, it could have come across as, you know, just like this commitment, but also, you know, in my speed of responses, in my flexibility, in understanding them, in how quickly during the, you know, sort of the initial evaluation process, we were able to evolve the product based on exactly what they were asking for. So all that probably resonated with some clients, but it's the classic puzzle, right? Because to try to build a company, a large company, you need, you need a big market. But in the big market, there are only a few buyers who basically, you know, are of the innovator persona, right? who are basically willing to take a chance on a new company, you know, new technology, et cetera. So that's what's hard for entrepreneurs because often we can reach a really great market, but it's not easy to find those innovators in that market. You know, that also fits your ICP, right? Ideal company profile or ideal customer profile. So, you know, for me, there was a lot of hustle that enabled me to reach some of those people. And then, you know, I was completely committed to making them successful. And how'd you go about finding and identifying them in the first place? It was just a lot of meetings, man. You know, I took every favor that I could from every friend, every investor, every former colleague, you know, former classmate, and even potential investors. So one of the initial clients actually was Uber. And Uber was an intro through an angel investor who actually ended up passing on us, but still made this amazing intro that we were able to take forward and build a relationship with the team at Uber. And you can imagine like for a company of our size, right, in just starting off, it was such a big deal to work with Uber and help them, you know, sort of create all these supplier and partner relationships globally. So, you know, I just used every relationship that I had, you know, I called in every favor that I could. Did it feel like it was working right away or how long did it take until it started to really feel like you were gaining traction and that there was a, a viable business and a viable product? It definitely took over three years. I feel like this was viable business and product. So I could tell that the problem existed immediately just based on the number of meetings I was getting with clients, right? And the seniority of these meetings, the you know, seniority of the clients that I was able to meet. So I'm like, okay, the problem seems real. Then, you know, the next step was, did I just get lucky by talking to a few clients or is this universal? So then I kind of, the next step was, okay, it seems like a broad universal problem. That was the next confirmatory test, right? And then we actually completely redeveloped the product once we fully understood the problem. Then we knew, okay, you know, what is the solution that would actually meet the need? So we had an initial, like an MVP solution and, you know, most, companies at some point need to completely rebuild the product. So we did that. And then once we needed the product, it really took off. How do you think about the market category today? Is it third-party risk management? Is it something else? How do you think about category? The closest category is third-party risk management. However, 
I feel like the existing companies in that category are pretty limiting. So they're limiting in the way that they're mainly, you know, third-party risk management mainly focuses on the suppliers. With our clients, they need a solution that works also for partners and customers. Secondly, the existing of third-party risk management solutions are basically SaaS applications, but what this needs actually is a complete platform that enables users or clients to build SaaS applications, to build their applications. So what this needed is like a no-code, low-code platform, which enabled multiple functions within the client to build their own ideal apps, right? which are all still interconnected and form the digital backbone of how companies work with their third parties. But because there's so much personalization configuration required, you know, I just feel like the way companies are going to market was just very limiting. So that's why we call ourselves uh, third-party lifecycle management versus just third-party risk management, because we just do a lot more than that, you know? I mean, also, you know, you may remember I'd mentioned we redeveloped the product from the ground up, and the way we redeveloped the product was in a very elegant layered architecture. So what that's enabled us to do now is easily layer on a generative AI sort of layer on top of our platform. So all the no-code, low-code features are now available via simple natural language, which is, you know, like so far ahead of what any of our competitors are able to do. What role do analyst firms like Gardner and Forrester play in your overall go-to-market? So as a B2B software firm focused on enterprises, analysts play a big role. So you have to talk to the Gartners and the Foresters of the world. However, you know, similar to what's happening in social media, it's also happening with the analysts. So what's happening in our world is that in addition to the Gartners and the Foresters of the world, there are individual independent analysts who've become pretty widely followed by our clients. So there's a compliance analyst called Michael Rasmussen, who's pretty widely followed by the compliance community. There's a procurement analyst by the name of Dr. Eloise Epstein, who's very widely followed by the procurement community. So that's been the change, Brett, where there's some individual analysts who've become almost as well-known as the analyst firms. It's similar to like the Mr. Beast phenomenon, <laughs> where, you know, with my 10-year-old, you know, Mr. Beast is as popular as, you know, Brad Pitt, right? You know, or Paramount Studios. Makes sense. The individual rises above the organization. Yeah, yeah. It's happening with the analysts as well, not just with the YouTubers. Makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. What have you learned Outside of that, as you've had conversations with analyst firms, what have you learned? And the reason I ask is that's kind of a black box for a lot of founders who are selling into the enterprise. They don't even know where to begin when it comes to analyst relations. So what are some of those lessons that you've learned throughout your interactions with them? Yeah, I mean, with the analyst firm, you know, it's a fairly simple like sequence of steps. So, you know, what every founder must do 
you know, especially those selling into the enterprise, is there's something called a vendor briefing at these analyst forums, right? So, you know, these that's free for everybody. So everybody should go to these analyst forums and do a vendor briefing. Now, if you want feedback on your briefing and you want them to, like, you know, in some ways guide you, then you need to pay for that. And, you know, that makes sense, you know, after, and as you get closer to CDZ, because that usually costs definitely like north of 50,000 a year. So as you get closer to early CDZ, then it makes sense to find, you know, who are the most active analyst firms in your space and then collaborate with them to basically give you feedback on your messaging, on your differentiation, et cetera. And that also allows you to build more of a relationship with the analyst. And then, you know, pitching to individuals is a bit easier, right? You know, they're more accessible. And yeah, I mean, I enjoy that part also, you know, pitching to individuals as well. When we look at marketing in general, how would you define or describe your general marketing philosophy? The marketing philosophy is customer education. You know, what we have is something very innovative. You know, what we think is, is extremely, you know, of late you know, 10 times more advanced than most other solutions. And the challenge for us is to just educate prospects on that. So that's basically what marketing is. Now that applies to every aspect of the customer lifecycle journey, right? So everything from raising awareness to, you know, helping them once they you know, are in the buying motion, like helping them understand the differences of what sort I can do to, you know, all the sales enablement, if you will, you know, the, the, you know enabling the sales team. So for B2B SaaS, I mean, I really think that's the best and the only way to look at marketing. It's not about branding, if you will, right? It's all about education. It's about raising awareness. What are you doing to rise above all the noise that's out there in the market? Yeah, it's really hard. I haven't found a magic formula for that. There are a few things that I think can help. One is, you know, building an active social media profile, like, you know, like we really worked on LinkedIn to engage your audience, to add value to, you, to your audience beyond what your product can do, like just in terms of the best practices, et cetera. That definitely helps. Number two, you know, storytelling and copywriting, like that is gold, right? So that's just, you know, the art of marketing, if you will. And then I think beyond that, doing all the basic blocking and tackling, right? You know, the Google ad, et cetera, just to make sure that if someone is already in the buying journey, a product similar to yours, you make sure you reach them. And then there are intermediaries like, you know, beyond the analyst forms, there are, uh, of course, system integrators, right, consulting firms and, and other partners who can play a pretty critical role in this as well. So just in terms of marketing and education, like we put a, a pretty strong emphasis on educating even the intermediaries. So I haven't totally figured this out, if you will, right? We're still figuring this out and rising above the noise. Looking through your website, it does seem like the messaging is very crisp and very clear, and it seems like you guys are doing all of the right things. Did you have any experience in marketing beforehand? Did you hire an agency? Did you bring on a, a great CMO? How did you get your marketing to the, the level that it's at today? It's all about the team. Like for me, it's just so much more important to get the right team. The agency is like, you know, I think, uh, <laughs> You know, many folks use this analogy of lasers versus like, you know, sort of just a, like a light bulb to light up a room. 
So agencies are like lasers, you know, they can come in, they can help for a project, but they're not going to be the one who will sustain you spreading your message and sharing your message. It's always going to be the team. And so you have to rely on and build like an incredible team. And, you know, we've been lucky enough to be able to do that in our marketing team. I don't know what else to add to this. It's all about hiring the right team. And I found that to be true in every function, not just in marketing. Right. Even in, in engineering, you know, I'm always opposed to outsourcing things, outsourcing, you know, work to agencies, even in SDRs, as you know, there are a lot of companies that will book meetings with you. I'm opposed to that. Right. I think a firm needs to own these capabilities and that's the only sustainable way. I think as a laser, it works to just get, you know, an agency in for one of these purposes, but anything more than three months, I think is. Yeah, it's, it's a mistake. I always wonder how many meetings these SDRs actually get booked and also like the brand risk and brand harm. Because I get right. so many and I'm sure your inbox is just filled with these. I probably get like 30 or 40 a day and they're completely unrelated to any problem that I have or even my industry. Like, I have to wonder like how effective those people actually are. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's the class of SDRs that'll just pray and pray, right? And that's the danger of hiring an agency. It's bad, right? I mean, I think you you really need to own, you know, the only way to do outreach effectively is in a highly targeted manner. So we're lucky that, you know, we focus on the largest enterprises only, which means, you know, it's classic account-based marketing. So that's what makes it easier for us to not be spammy. But I have a lot of sympathy for folks who are just trying to do outreach and especially sympathy for folks who, not just the firms, but also the people, because it's one of the hardest jobs in an enterprise, man, you know, just outreach. So, I, I mean, I think the, the only way I've found is extremely targeted, extremely personalized, right? You know, otherwise you risk harming your brand. Makes sense and totally agree. What do you think's been the most important and impactful decision that you've made today? I don't know who I was listening to recently. I think it was Brian from Airbnb, Brian Chesky. I think he said a company, a sustainable advantage of a company is just a series of decisions and problems you solve, right? And that's, you know, the initial idea is what it is, but then it's just a constant series of, you know, decisions that you take and judgments that you make and that basically builds kind of the snowball effect, right? If you're, if you're doing things and if you're doing majority of the things well, then it builds a snowball effect and, you know, that's what builds a company and that really resonated with me. So it's kind of like a lot of decisions ongoing at the stage we are at now, which is post CDP. It really is all about the people. Like it's just shocking to me how important and how impactful a good hire can be and vice versa, right? How impactful a misfit hire can be. So, I mean, for me, you know, if I look at the most impactful decisions, I think they've all been about getting the right people into the company. Beyond the people decisions, I think there are a few, again, a few good things that we did. I think a few positive things. The one, we really, you know, we invested in building a great, like, deep product. So we didn't go to market too early with something shallow. So what that meant is, you know, we've been able to successfully deploy Serta at every single client we've sold Serta to. Right? So we've not let the clients down, which has created a good reputation for us. I mean, often clients come to us after doing the research that said, well, you guys deliver, 
I mean, yeah, for sure we do that. I think the other thing, you know, there's architecture decisions that we took that were really good, but some of them, of course, come down to the people who built the product. And I'm trying to see what else was super impactful. I think it's in terms of go-to-market, right? Being more focused has helped. So, you know, at some point we decided that we were going to focus on the enterprise and not the mid-market. And because you have to be focused, even the enterprise is too big, right? So even enterprises, you know, just being more focused as well. I think maybe the last thing that comes to mind is focusing on your strengths is important. They're quite, quite important. So it just, you know, so what we realized is that our strength was solving this big problem, which is third-party management, risk compliance, and, you know, and ESG for large enterprises. And, you know, the product, you're just like, okay, well, let's just focus on that. Because that's big enough. And of course, you can go to the, you know, the SMB and, you know, mid-sized, you know, mid-sized firms later in your journey. But why not focus on just the enterprise for now? As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over 50 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? A few lessons, right? So one, ongoing relationships and ongoing, you know, updates are super impactful in fundraising. So fundraising works well if you can stay in touch with a few investors, you know, maybe quarterly, et cetera, who might be interested in your space and enable them to track you, right? And you can also benefit from that relationship because sometimes they'll make inflows for you. So, you know, for example, at the Series B, you know, once we started the process, we were able to reach out to a significant number of folks because we were in touch with them already. It was a surprise to them. So we were able to raise, that's why, even in this tough market. Secondly, for me, having a great CFO was quite helpful because especially at, you know, post-CDZ stage, companies, you know, investors need a lot of metrics and a great CFO knows how to find the data to provide, you know, the right data and the right messaging and the right narrative to the investors related to that. So that was super helpful for me. And thirdly, we iterated on the story quite a bit and we made the story or the company story, we made it relatable in two ways. You know, one, we, we showed impact to real clients. And in, in other ways, we used analogies, you know, so for example, Serta is like the workday, but for companies, you know, instead of people. So those analogies really help investors understand you because they're trying to understand your business in a pretty short period of time. So those analogies are super helpful, right? You know, for example, in Workday as well, you know, it's one system to manage, you know, all the logistics and the compliance and the, you know, sort of all the risk mitigation related to your people. And that's what we do for companies that our clients work with globally. Final question for you before we wrap up here. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? Yeah, that companies will be able to onboard and work with each other with one click. So it will still meet all the compliance needs. It will still be safe. So meet all the risk mitigation, fraud checks, but it would be as easy as one click. So it would be as easy as accepting a LinkedIn connection. Amazing. Love the vision. All right, Jad, we are up on time. So we're going to have to wrap. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in and they want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? The best place is LinkedIn. So basically I'm Jag Lamba and my, you know, if you will handle the LinkedIn equivalent of handle is J Lamba, J-L-A-M-B-A. So would love to connect with folks and share knowledge. And uh, <laughs> generally, I mean, of course, you know, a lot of the founders are going through 
the same journey and it's good to see people around and <laughs> say hello. Amazing. Jack, thanks so much for taking time to chat. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Brett. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 